Hello, Professor Stanley here, and I'm going to record a podcast to correspond with my PowerPoint on disorders of childhood and adolescence. You know, when you start thinking about children, it can cause you to ask questions of what is normal or what is abnormal, because many times it may not be as evident in children whether or not there is a psychological problem, and this can actually delay the treatment considerably. So what is normal? What is abnormal? When does an emotional issue or behavioral disturbance become a definable pathology? And which pathologies require clinical treatment and when? So hopefully as we go through our lecture today, you may be able to spot them more clearly. Because one thing I have noticed is that when I used to work in children's psychiatric care, some of the behaviors I would see from these children would not be as different as what I might see in children who were quote unquote normal. So let's talk about what some of those signs and symptoms are. And you know, interestingly in your book, let me see if I can find the page here. It is on page number 651. There is a list of critical pediatric symptoms that indicate the need for assessment and possible intervention. So if you're looking to see whether a child that you may be familiar with is normal or abnormal, in other words, they actually are in need of some mental assistance or some mental help for uh, mental health issues, then you might look at some of these symptoms to help you make that determination. So first of all, about 13 to 20% of kiddos will suffer from a mental health disorder. And some of the things that may be a sign of that for you would be a sudden change or a dramatic change in behavior, or perhaps um, maybe something that is a behavioral change that occurs over time. Suicide attempts or suicide ideation are always things that indicate a need for intervention. Temper tantrums that are accompanied by intense rage or physical aggression, things of that nature. Recurrent fighting, wanting to harm others. Maybe vomiting, starvation, or use of laxatives in order to achieve weight loss. That would be an example of an eating disorder. Sudden panic level anxiety or fear that does not have a precipitating event attached with it. Anxious, I'm sorry, anxious distress excessive worry or severe sadness that impairs participation in the daily activities. So basically, once again, you know, how, how much are these in- interfering with the daily life? Impairment in concentration to the extent that the child's success at school or physical safety is threatened. So for example, um, you may have a child who's suffering from attention deficit hyperactive disorder who can't focus on schoolwork and therefore is slipping behind the classmates Or you may have a child who is so preoccupied internally or, you know, has such a lack of concentration that they might even step off a curb and out into traffic without even realizing it. That would definitely indicate the need for psychiatric intervention. Repeated use of drugs or alcohol is also an indicator. Now, as your book will point out later, and I probably will mention later when we talk about adolescent substance abuse and child substance abuse, it is semi-normal for children to actually, you know, um, maybe experiment with these types of things. But if it becomes persistent or endures or excessive, then that is different entirely and needs to be addressed right away. Now, there are some risk factors. This would correspond with slide three for mental illness. And of course, the very first part of that is the family history of mental illness. 
you know, I've been dipping into the literature lately looking at bipolar disorder. And one thing that a lot of studies have identified is that when you have children who are suffering from bipolar disorder, a family history, but also combined with the interactions with the unhealthy parent, tend to be the reason that children go ahead and develop bipolar disorder. It's probably a combination of the two factors. Genetics definitely can play a link in mental disorder development. It was interesting to me though also that the book did mention that premature birth could be a factor and it talked about 12.8% of children in the United States having a premature birth and that the more premature an infant is, the more likely they are to suffer from different types of mental disorders. Um, neuro, you know, neurodevelopmental issues may be to blame for that partially. Maybe the family stress of having a child who has, um, you know, different problems or even medical illnesses can also be a contributing factor. So, uh, for instance, if you have a child, you know, with a physical disability, that might be something that would help to contribute toward mental illness because they struggle with the the challenges of overcoming obstacles in that way. But once again, these things don't necessarily have to contribute to mental illness. They can be things that help to promote resiliency within, in, within the individual. And it doesn't have to be a disability either that maybe contributes to the development of mental illness, but children who have any kind of chronic illness, such as, you know, many children will struggle with type 1 diabetes or maybe um, asthma. These things may affect their life and keep them out of activities their other classmates might enjoy. And they may struggle with coping skills that affect, you know, from the effects of managing that illness. So anyway, also it did mention in the book that there is a disorder called PANDAS or Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsych Disorder, which results from an infection with streptococcus or other viruses and it does have symptoms that are similar to obsessive compulsive disorder or a tick disorder. Now, as it mentions in the book, there has not been a lot of research on this and it is poorly understood at this point. So we won't go into a lot more detail on that right now. Another thing that may be a factor in the development of mental disorders in children is the temperament of a child. So for example, if you have a child who is, you know, what I would say very chill, you know, very calm and and not very reactive to their environment, they may do quite well in a very noisy environment where there's a lot of activity around them. They may just kind of be centered and be able to focus and be able to deal with that. Or you may have a child who's prone and very sensitive to their environment. And so in their case, they may struggle greatly if they have an environment that is very active and very loud or noisy, and they may feel like they need to cry or feel overwhelmed in that case. Now, of course, it's not just these things that are risk factors. There are many, many other factors that contribute to whether or not a child might develop some mental illness. You may remember back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how we've already discussed that children that are born into poverty and that have low incomes and not enough food and, you know, maybe inadequate uh, housing or clothing or access to education and other resources or parents who are drug addicted, all these things may mean that at the very bottom level of the pyramid, the safety level of the pyramid, are not met, and those children have a difficult time ever reaching higher levels on the pyramid, just like we all would. And so what may happen as a result of this is it may contribute to children being unable to meet the developmental tasks associated with different levels of maturation and result in maturational crises 
for children as they continue to mature. So for example, you know, we've already talked about Erickson and you have the infant in the trust versus mistrust stage. Well, if they're in an environment where their parents don't have food to provide for them and they wind up going hungry and their needs aren't met, they might not trust the adult providers to be able to give them what they need. So a lot of this is going to be based on risk factors and adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. I did post an article um, on the ACEs on the website so we can look at what some of those are. So let me just go ahead and open up that window and I'll go see ahead and see if I can click on that and read through that with you. So I've got it open now and if you'll take a look at the thing on the website it talks about adverse childhood experiences and there's a 10 question assessment that was developed to kind of measure how that is with children. Now, it does mention that ACEs are common across all income groups and among children with both public and private insurance. And 58% of U.S. children with ACEs live in homes with incomes less than 200% of the federal poverty level. Anyway, I'm not going to go over a lot there. You can certainly go read that for yourself. But when you do click on it and go to the ACEs assessment, it does give you some different factors that will contribute. Like it says, did a parent or other adult in your household often or very often swear at you? insult you, put you down, or humiliate you, or act in a way that made you afraid that you might be physically hurt. So you can see that when children have these types of, you know, things in their life, that it may contribute to, you know, not being able to meet the developmental stages, because we are looking at a basic factor of safety there. Okay, so enough about that for now. Let's go ahead and move on to caregiver interaction. Okay, caregiver interaction can also be something that will either predispose or um, contribute to children developing mental disorders in childhood. The original researcher on that, of course, was Bowlby, who was a um, British fellow, and he actually concluded that attachment between a child and caregiver lays the foundation for future relationships with others and with their surroundings. And of course, his work was developed or was built upon by the researcher Ainsworth, but Bowlby looked at different types of attachment when he called them proximity and maintenance, which is the desire to be near people we are attached to, safe haven, returning to that attachment figure for comfort and safety in the face of fear or threat, secure base, where the attachment figure acts as a base of security from which the child can explore their surrounding environment, and separation distress, anxiety that occurs in the absence of the attachment figure. Ainsworth then went on to study the work of Bowlby and describe three major styles of attachment, which are secure, ambivalent, insecure, and avoidant insecure. So it's just looking at the way that children attach to the people that they are in, you know, in intimate care with and their caregiver and how it affects their relationships for the future. And once again, we have those ACEs because they did describe how life events such as divorce or physical or sexual abuse and things of that nature can negatively impact attachment stability. When there is stable and warm influence in the home, these serve to protect the child from the stress of the world and the parent's own ability to regulate emotion, fears and sadness and things of that nature also shape the development or sense of self in children so you can see why you have children that when they are actually raised by mentally ill parents who aren't able to regulate their own emotion fears or sadness that they might actually help to contribute to the illness of the child not necessarily only because of the genetics of the interaction but also because of the fact 
that they are interacting from a way that does not promote a development of sense of self in their children. So this leads us to slide number five, which is the protective versus the risk factors for psychiatric disorders of childhood. Now, there, so there are certain factors, such as consistent caregivers, good exercise and diet, time in nature, improved relationships, recreation and ability and enjoyable activities, relaxation, stress management, even service to others, a stable family life, a high IQ, high socioeconomic status, and a basis in faith. Now, here are some risk factors, frequent changes in caregivers a lower socioeconomic status, drugs, exposure to trauma, parental divorce, you know, leading to unstable home lives, child abuse and neglect. So ultimately, the stronger the support structure of family, school, peers, you know, church, whatever it is, the more resilient the child will be when facing stressors. Factors such as divorce, bullying, abuse, neglect, violence in the community, negative peer influence, can all be mediated by these positive factors like family, connection with religious activities, strong teacher mentor, and this is why building strong social networks is a critical protective factor for protection from distress, which leads to psychiatric disorders. When children do not have this base, they are much more likely to be weaker when it comes to these types of resilient factors. Now, as I go through this, I realize very greatly that many of you may have had adverse childhood experiences in your own childhood. And the last thing we want to do in the middle of a psychiatric nursing course is to trigger memories that may be related to that. So I really want to encourage you as you read through these adverse childhood experiences that if you need to take some time and seek some counseling, come and talk to me or let's go to the University Counseling Center and talk to them and let's work through some of that so that you can make it through this course. Now, I did post a video that is an ACES video. Um, it was found on YouTube. Obviously, the little boy in there is British. And it's interesting to see as he traces the life path of someone who has adverse childhood experiences and gets help versus someone who continues to have adverse childhood experiences and eventually winds up repeating the pattern with his own family. So please go and watch that video. I think it will really help to make sense in regard to the effect that ACEs have on the individual and their psychological well-being. Okay, so I do have one more slide on that subject, and that is trauma effects disorders that are contributable to the frequency and number of events or ACEs and can lead to certain disorders. The first, of course, being post-traumatic stress disorder. You would expect that to happen because of exposure to trauma. And this is where a person may have distressing dreams, flashbacks, hyperarousal. That means that they're always very, you know, hypervigilant in their environment, kind of nervous. You might think of them that way. Or even numb and unable to experience um, emotions in the way that other people might. They might have dissociative behavior or memory impairment. And while we haven't had our dissociative behavior lecture, what that really means is that they may be somewhat... Um, don't want to say out of touch with reality, but it basically means that things may seem surreal to them or, you know, that they may have some memory gaps, just different types of dissociative symptoms. They may have issues with attachment, difficulty with behavioral control, difficulty with limits being set and interpersonal awareness. They may even have immune and neurodevelopment problems. 
lower levels of interest and activity, um, revisiting the trauma and play, withdrawal from their environment, impulsivity and aggression, mood swings, somatic symptoms such as head or stomach ache, repressive language or behavior, uh, I'm sorry, regressive language or behavior. So all of these things can be symptoms of PTSD. There may be elimination disorder. It's not uncommon to see people who have had a lot of trauma actually have trouble with voiding or defecation and may, you know, you may think that they're somewhat not even potty trained. Like I've had seven-year-olds that would crawl up under the desk of the nurse's station and go to the bathroom. They may have anxiety disorders like separation anxiety or even selective mutism, which is not an inability to speak, but a failure to speak in certain situations. There may be mood disorders like depression, which lead to self-injury, substance abuse, thoughts of suicide or actual suicide attempts, and a loss of functioning. There may be pediatric bipolar disorder, which results in significant mood disturbances. I had a friend whose daughter had pediatric bipolar disorder, and it was very rapid cycling. So her moods would go between rage and, you know, she would go up and down and up and down all day long instead of being like a definite manic period and a definite um, depressive period. You might have rage in this instance, grandiosity, hypersexual behavior, a decreased need for sleep, and poor judgment. Then there are disruptive mood disorders, which are severe cycling of moods. This is pretty common to see now in children, where they have recurrent frequent outbursts or irritability. Psychosis may even be present in children of trauma, where from depression, anxiety, or um, even the beginnings of schizophrenia. And of course, self-injury and suicide. This is the third leading cause of death for adolescents. So anyway, that's just a few things. Um, I do want to mention, too, that certain people are more at risk for the suicidality, and that would be um, being a gay male, people that are impulsive, people that use substances, lots of trauma, or a family history of violence or mental illness. All right, let's go on to slide number eight, which is going to talk specifically about the neurodevelopment disorders. While these certainly include things like intellectual disability and global developmental delay and language and speech and communication disorders, it also includes autism spectrum disorder and ADHD. And you may hear quite a bit about autism spectrum disorder of late. Um, It does seem to be increasing in our society, or perhaps it may be something that is being more readily identified. But children who have autism spectrum disorder struggle greatly with making and keeping friends, and they often do not understand why others do not befriend or understand them. The challenges of social interaction with others can really isolate them, and they feel as if just, like I said, like the world just does not understand them in general, and they can get confused by the world. Levels of severity do vary quite greatly with regards to autism. You may have some that are very high-functioning, but it is characterized by this impaired social interaction and communication. They will often have restrictive or repetitive behaviors and interest. And as I said, they struggle with making friends and don't understand why others don't befriend or understand them. Then we have attention deficit disorder. And I would bet that you are probably a little bit familiar with this. This is the most common psychiatric disorder of childhood. Ranges from 3 to 7% of children that actually have this. And this actually is the one that many children are diagnosed with because it does affect their ability to learn. Core symptoms fall into three categories, inattention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity. The inattention symptoms may be that they make careless mistakes. Um, 
not really listening when they're spoken to directly, trouble organizing things, um, get really distracted or bored easily, difficulty following directions. And then, of course, we have the sentence of hyperactivity, which is where you would see kids that are fidgeting in their seat and squirming and, or they nonstop talk or have difficulty playing quietly. Um, they may have quite a difficult time, especially in quieter environments. And then you have problems of impulsivity, which is difficulty waiting in line or waiting their turn, frequently interrupting others, blurting out inappropriate comments, things of that nature that may make it very difficult for them to function and to be able to learn in a school environment. Now, the book goes on to talk about how in females, especially the primarily inattentive type, may be more prevalent and may, as such, go undiagnosed for several years, whereas the combined type, where you have the, the hyperactivity and all of that with boys, is typically associated with more school and social problems, so they're diagnosed earlier and they probably get treatment earlier. Now let's go on and move on to disruptive impulse control and conduct disorders. Disruptive behavior disorders include oppositional defiant disorders, intermittent explosive disorder, and conduct disorder. They all fall under the heading of disruptive behavior disorders. Now the first one, oppositional defiant disorder, is characterized by irritability and a defiance of adult authority figures. They may have anger and aggression that disrupts their daily functioning. They may be very oppositional, you know, like if you ask them to do something, they're going to say, no, I'm not. They're vindictive. They may have negativistic tendencies, hostile behavior. And if this is not addressed early on, these patterns in young children can become crystallized patterns of behavior by age eight, which is believed, of course, to lead to increasing academic problems. You could see why that would happen if they have resistance to authority figures and eventually lead to dropping out of school, substance abuse, delinquency, and violence. This is difficult to treat, and it does require psychosocial and parental coaching as well as medication management. Many times there are some things that are going on in the home that if we can teach the parents how to manage it, sometimes it'll get better. Many times they have very dysfunctional family environments. Then there's something called intermittent explosive disorder. This is where you have outburst and an inability to control your aggressive impulses. It may be exhibited in the form of tantrums or arguments or physical aggression. And the aggression is out of proportion to the stressor. And so behaviors are not premeditated. They don't, you know, plan this out. And it does distress or impair functioning. So, you know, these are kids who have difficulty with impulse control and they have outbursts. Then we have conduct disorder. And this is a persistent pattern of antisocial behaviors, which includes fighting, bullying, stealing, vandalism, lying for personal gain. And it is linked to deficits and inhibitory behavioral control. They have poor verbal abilities oftentimes and a family history of antisocial behavior. Calloused, unemotional traits are present within these individuals. They are, you know, very calloused and almost might come across, you know, somewhat sociopathic in their nature. They have severe anger dysregulation. Poor parental monitoring usually is part of this. Um, they do have an increased risk of incarceration, depression, chemical dependency, and suicide. Without intervention, 
Both this and oppositional defiant disorder will carry a poor prognosis. And in this case, just like with oppositional defiant, we need to work with everyone, the parent and the children. It's only through this multi-layered intervention that we can hope to interrupt this cycle. These are the children that often will go on to become, if we don't treat them, antisocial in personality and wind up being part of the prison system. So the prognosis is not good if we don't have some early intervention on this. Now let's go on to slide 10, and there you should find the tick disorders and Tourette's syndrome. Tourette's syndrome is a neurological disorder, and it is characterized, and it does start in childhood, and it is characterized by both motor and phonic tics. The motor part would be sudden, purposeful, purposeless, repetitive you know, movements like eye blinking, facial grimacing, grimacing head jerking, or it can also have vocalizations like sudden, you know, crying out or throat clearing or grunting or sneezing or snoring or even repetitive short phrases or even swearing. It usually resolves by early adulthood. Only 20% will remain symptomatic after that point and usually is a result or, you know, somewhat sensitive to stress and the tics do worsen with excitement or fatigue. As I was studying for this, I was thinking about a time when my brother exhibited a tick because he was in a stressful situation. So he was in the middle of his wedding, and the pastor asked him, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? At which point, when he said, I do, his entire face like went into this huge, like kind of uh, involuntary tick where it kind of scrunched up in a funny way. And that was an example of what you might see with a tick disorder. Anyway, just thought I'd give you a funny story. So tick disorders don't have the pattern of motor or phonic symptoms that Tourette's does. They're divided into three categories by the DSM, or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. The first one is provisional tick disorder. And this is where you have a single or multiple motor and or vocal tics, but they've been present for less than a year. Now, once we've crossed the year mark, then it will be classified as persistent tick disorder if you have motor or vocal tics, but not both motor and vocal. Then if you have both motor and vocal, then it is a diagnosis of Tourette syndrome, or there's obviously a longer name for it. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Gilles de la Tourette syndrome or something. All right, so that is the tick disorder. Now let's go on to feeding and eating disorders. Feeding and eating disorders will often stem from depression, anxiety, a perception of stress, and a dissatisfaction with your own personal appearance. It may include a very distorted body image. And what I mean by that is, even though somebody may be quite thin and, you know, look good and, and not be overweight, they may perceive themselves as overweight. So in the case of treatment of these types of patients, self-esteem building exercises can be very helpful to help promote you know, diversity in appearance so that they can be happy with who they are. Care is focused on relearning normal patterns of eating and exercise and restoring social and community relationships and participation and generalizing new eating patterns within the community. Now, of course, when we're talking about eating disorders, we're gonna have bulimia, which is a binge purge cycle. So somebody may overeat and then go throw up. It does cause extensive damage to teeth and uh, you know, the esophagus and, and different parts of the you know, eating, eating system, if digestive system, if you don't treat this soon enough. 
Anorexia is the use of laxatives or starvation or even avoiding certain classes of food and you can become quite nutritionally compromised. I had a patient one time who was anorexic, but she was overweight, but she was only avoiding, avoiding certain classes of food, but still had the diagnosis. Obesity is in itself an eating disorder. It's like a compulsive overeating or perhaps a binge eating sort of cycle. And so all these things can be eating and feeding disorders. Now these disorders are of course very complex conditions and we still don't know everything about the cause of them. And although they have food and weight issues in common, most experts now believe that eating disorders are caused by people attempting to cope with these overwhelming feelings and painful emotions by controlling their food. Unfortunately, they do eventually damage the person's physical and emotional health, self-esteem, and their sense of control. Now, there are several factors that are involved in developing eating disorders, such as genetics or environment, you know, like cultural pressures that idealize a particular body type. For example, looking in a magazine, you often see people who are almost anorexic. Um, peer pressure. So you, for young people, this can be a very powerful force to be a certain size, to avoid ridicule. Um, a history of physical or sexual abuse can also contribute to some people developing the disorder. And of course, you know, their emotional state, uh, where they're perfectionistic or impulsive, these can all make them more vulnerable to having eating disorders. Treatment in this case, of course, will center around psychotherapy where you are working through and talking through and, and exercising behaviors, you know, behavioral therapy strategies so that you can develop new patterns, taking antidepressants or anti-anxiety drugs, and getting nutritional counseling and weight restoration monitoring. When you have these patients in the psychiatric unit, they may be on purge precautions, which may mean that you have to supervise them for an hour after mealtime in order to make certain that they are not participating in behaviors which could be damaging to them through purging the food that they've just taken in. Okay, going on to substance use and addictive disorders. By the senior year of high school, almost 70% have tried alcohol. Half will have taken an illegal drug. 40% smoked a cigarette and 20% used a prescription drug for non-medical purposes. Factors that influence drug use are the availability, if their friends are using them, their family environment, is there you know, violence, physical or emotional abuse, mental illness, drug use in their family, inherited genetic vulnerability, you're much more likely to have a drug addiction if your parents have been drug users, Personality traits, like remember how we talked about in teenagers, their brains were not fully developed and the impulse control areas of their brain were not developed yet. So in that case, they may be more likely to do it because they have poor impulse control or a need for excitement or even anxiety, depression, and attention deficit disorder also may predispose someone to it. The brain is still developing and some areas are less mature. The prefrontal cortex specifically, which is the decision-making part and the impulse control part. So also, the teen brain in and of itself is wired, you might say, through its neurons and through pathways to avoid pain and seek pleasure. But still has the limited decision-making of the teenage brain. As drugs flood the brain's reward circuit with dopamine, it creates a strong drive to repeat the behavior while the brain is still struggling with impulse control. 
The drug does even alter the brain itself in the areas that are necessary for judgment and self-control, and it is almost impossible to stop. That's why, you know, use during the teenage years are especially difficult, and it can affect key developmental and social transition points. So this is an important, you know, concept to think about. As you are in the teenage years, you hit a number of developmental milestones, and if substance use is present, it can really arrest that development so that you don't continue on the path that you're supposed to continue on. Now, let's go ahead and go through some of the medications that might be used in children's psychiatric units. We may have stimulants such as Adderall, Ritalin, or Vyvanse, and the thing about these are they're um, used for attention deficit disorder to treat, you know, ADHD because they do help improve concentration, even though they are stimulants. Some of the side effects that you might have with these are your stomach um, may hurt, your appetite may be decreased, you might have headache, agitation, sleep disruption. I will tell you that many times patients who are taking Adderall, Ritalin, or Vyvanse may actually pop positive on a urine drug screen for meth. So that does happen from time to time. And the other thing to remember about stimulants is that sometimes they can actually cause behaviors that, um, how do I say this, they might in and of themselves kind of reduce a little bit of impulse control. Then we have mood stabilizers, such as Depakote. You may recognize it as valproic acid. It also works for seizures. Tegretol, Trileptal, Lithium. And there are special things that can happen with that. Like, for example, Lithium and Depakote both can develop toxicity. So they have to be monitored to make sure they're not reaching uh, toxic levels for staying in therapeutic range. They can, both, they can all cause weight gain, hair loss, GI distress, rashes, Cognitive dulling, and you could see how somebody's cognitive processes were somewhat dulled, that that would not be beneficial for pursuing an education, so you could see where that could be a problem. Antidepressants such as Zoloft, Prozac, or Lexapro, Luvox, or Nafronil are also things that can be used. Of course, there are some side effects with those, headache, GI, agitation, anxiety, insomnia being the most common. Stratera is interesting because it is a non-stimulant medication, and it does work for ADHD, but it in of itself can cause sedation, dizziness, GI problems, agitation, urinary retention. And then we have the antipsychotics, which can be really helpful with thought disorders or mood stabilization, like in bipolar disorder. And But they can cause sedation, and there are actually quite a few things that can happen with antipsychotics. We are going to go over those more later. EPS symptoms you already may be familiar with. They can also make you predisposed to diabetes or heart disease, and so weight gain may be a side effect, tiredness, headaches, and dizziness. And then we have something known as ORAP for Tourette's, and it can cause hypotension, QT prolongation, tachycardia, prolactin elevation, nausea, cramps, and headaches. And then finally, they do believe now that fish oil can help to stave off some of the... um, some of the psychotic symptoms with schizophrenia development and for those in the prodromal stage, they do put them on fish oil now. Now, when it comes to doing therapy for children, the problem is, is that with children in particular and adolescents as well, you know, the traditional talk therapy doesn't work that well. So we have to focus instead on things like play therapy. And that allows children to be able to get in there and really work through emotions through their play 
And then they can learn through play therapy to also master impulses and adapt to the environment as they act out conflicts and stressful situations. Therapeutic drawing can be a wonderful method of therapy to use with children as they can use this to capture their thoughts. So you can take your art journaling and use it with kids in many cases because they don't have the verbal words to say what they are feeling and what they're thinking. Drawing can help them to do that and can help to really illustrate what it is that they've maybe experienced. And it can be a way for therapists to be able to get a timeline on a history of a child. Music therapy, movement, and dance can be very effective. Recreational therapy, family therapy is extremely important working with the parents and the child. Behavioral modification and cognitive behavioral therapy, so basically rewarding behaviors that you want to have repeated and uh, maybe either ignoring or punishing behaviors you want extinguished. Dramatic play therapy, such as the psychodrama, where they can act out their emotional problems Examine the experience and develop new perspectives may give the children a chance to try out their new behaviors. And milieu therapy may also be very good for this because if you have a good psychiatric unit where everything is functioning as it should, it provides another avenue for children to try out some different behaviors and find out the effectiveness of them. So my final slide is really just a case study that we're going to do in class. And I'll go ahead and read it to you. It talks about a young boy named Marty. And he comes to the psych unit and his mom reports that he's been getting into lots of fights at school and is bullying his behavior toward his sister. He will often yell at his mom and make anger and have many anger outbursts. She said last night he picked up a kitchen knife and threatened his sister with it. And this was the catalyst that caused her to finally seek some care for him. When you're talking to mom, you notice that he's sitting with an angry expression on his face with his arms crossed, and then he would get up and start fidgeting with things in the office and then sit back down, and at one point, he even got up and threw himself on the floor and started rolling around on the floor, making loud guttural sounds. At one point in the interaction, he tried to interrupt his mom while she was talking and said, let's go, several times, while pulling at his mom's arm to try to get her out of the chair. You asked how he does in school, and Mom reports he has difficulty getting up and getting ready in the morning and is frequently late to school. She says the teacher has said that he has difficulty concentrating, he seems disinterested, and he has been caught copying off other students' papers and is frequently disruptive in class. You find out that he is behind in reading, and the school has him working on it with a reading tutor. Mom reports that his father left about two years ago, and since that time, she has been working to try to make ends meet and not doing a very good job of it at that, she says. Marty comes home by himself after school and is home alone for about an hour until she gets off work. She identifies little social support, except that she has a next-door neighbor that Marty lets know he is home from school and can ask for help if he needs it. When you ask what Marty likes, you find out that he likes basketball, especially the Thunder, and you also find out that he used to like going camping with his father and learn to fish. She also tells you that he collects rocks and knows a lot about them. So based on these observations, you're going to work to develop a behavior plan for Marty to be used on the unit and later at home. What sorts of things do you think you might want to put on the behavior plan for Marty? So we are going to work as a class on some, you know, planning for behavior for Marty because that is an important concept on how we do that. And it might give you a good overview of the type of behavioral therapy that we do on a unit through creating an environment where 
we have real structure for Marty. Well, all right. Thank you for listening. I'm going to post this, and I'm also going to post my PowerPoint, which should correspond very closely to this podcast. Thank you for listening once again.